0: Hey, thanks to Tony and the worship team for leading us this morning. Appreciate your heart. Well, I'm really excited to announce our guest this morning. Um, Lots of you probably heard me, if you've been around here at all, quote Dave Johnson frequently. What you don't know is that when I quote him at the beginning of a sermon, I just don't tell you that the quote never ends, and I'm plagiarizing him the whole time. So this is how we're rolling around here. No, actually, Dave has been such a huge influence on my life, and I'll tell you more about that in the coming weeks, but after Dave completed 38 years at one church, Church of the Open Door, my home church in Minnesota, last uh, November, um, before that, we had even said, hey, we would love for you to come and and just work with our staff and our elders and some of the other covenant pastors and folks that I know in the area and uh, speak at our retreat, and so we just looked at the retreat at the end of the month and kind of backed it out and said, hey, What if you come for like five or six weeks? On Wednesday night, we'll have you teach a class, which will be happening in here. And we'll have him preach a couple Sunday mornings as well. Um, So Wednesday nights, we're doing Discover Groups for the next five Wednesdays right in here. And would love it if you come and be a part of this. Uh, It'll be 7 o'clock. It'll be about an hour and a half. We'll be done by 8.30. Dave will do some teaching. We'll have some time for discussion, maybe at tables or Q&A. But Dave, will you come on up and just give us kind of a read on what we're going to do Wednesday night, what you're teaching on in terms of the Beatitudes?
1: I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's what I said before, anyway. You know, um, um, uh, the the choice of that uh, topic is significant. We and I, you and I talked about it. It goes back to 1985. For me, I was um, fairly new to Open Door, obviously, in 85, and I was just going through the book of Matthew and came to chapter 5, which is the Sermon on the Mount, but it begins with the Beatitudes. And there's a number of things I remember about it, but at the time, what I remember most was how um, I didn't want to do them. I mean, it's like um, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says things that, if you're really honest, at least this is how I look at it, um, they aren't appealing things. They're, they, and in some ways, don't make sense. Uh, They don't resonate with me. I grew up in church. My dad's a pastor, so I heard these things all my life. But Jesus says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are deficient in spirit. Sign me up. No, I mean, what? What? You know, Sunday you nod your head in church, but this doesn't resonate at all. Blessed are those who mourn. Sounds like blessed are the bummed. Happy are the sad. And here I am thinking, happy are the happy. And so I'm kind of coming into this thing going, how is this thing going to work, and it just, what happened is, and I know it happens for you, when you dig into the Word, the the, the great joy of it is all of a sudden there's things there you never saw until you dug a little deeper, and just to make a long story short, and I'll set it up a little bit more on Wednesday, but um, it it, it changed the DNA of our church, An understanding of the Beatitudes gave words to what God was in some ways already doing, Um, and it's such a trajectory of our life as a church for the next three Decades, actually, um, to to the point. Actually, when um, I was leaving Open Door finally, and we're still relationally tethered, and even I'm kind of a sent one from Open Door. Uh, just a couple of months ago, when they saw the end was near, we did that a lot. The end is near, anyway. The big cardboard sign. I know. I know it's all. Um, I did. I did the Beatitudes one more time at Open Door, and and um, it's just so down deep in to me. And um, I just think, I I know what God's already doing here, and I think it's going to give words to you uh, to even, we were talking yesterday about the big thing in the covenant, where is it written? Well, God's already doing things here, and you go into Matthew 5, and you're going to find out where it is written. It is written, right? Here, blessed are the broken. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst um, for a different kind of righteousness. They're the ones who get it, and yeah. It'll be fun.
0: I'm Thanks, Dave. And I'm excited about that. So Wednesday nights, right here, 7 o'clock. And without further ado now, will y'all welcome my friend, my mentor, my pastor, Dave Johnson, to preach a word this
1: morning. Love you, man. Yeah. <laughs> without any further ado, all the ado is over. No more adoing is done. I, I really am delighted. I want to say a couple things about being here for a few reasons. One is my obviously, obvious affinity for uh, Doug and Heidi, and by extension to all of you, I was here a year ago. I don't know if you remember that, but I kind of came away from that weekend with you with a real interest and a love for this church and and the men of it. We had a Saturday breakfast. I'm really looking forward to the retreat as well. But another uh, reason I'm excited about this is uh, something Doug already mentioned is that this time it's not this normal one and done kind of thing. I'm not coming in for a weekend. See you later. And um, But this ability, and it's because I'm gone from open door right now, and in this interesting season of even wondering what's next, um, that I get to come and kind of sit with you for a while. I'm just very, I'm actually uh, grateful for for that. I think it's going to be good for me. I think it's going to be good for us as well. I wondered a lot about what I would talk about this morning, kind of the first Sunday to kick things off before we go into Lent. We kind of know the theme around Lent, and um, for a variety of reasons, uh, among them this is season that you are in as a church. Doug is, I mean, Doug was here a year ago and even before that, but he wasn't the senior pastor a year ago. He is now. There's some things changing for you and some, some transitions that you're going through, uh, and for other things as well. I was drawn to this particular story. It's fairly familiar, found in the book of Joshua. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Joshua chapter one. It's also going to be on the screen. So you can follow along that way. Joshua chapter one, where the people of God are on the shores of the Jordan River, about to cross over that river and enter into the Promised Land. But to get to the Promised Land, um, they're going to have to cross this this river. Which, which may not sound like a big deal, we just cross the river, no big deal, but it's something, and this is really a significant part of the story. The river they're about to cross is not just a river, it, it, it kind of symbolically speaks to something that the previous generation never was able to do or never was willing to do, having um, wandered in the wilderness, and you know that story quite well, for 40 long years, never crossed over into the fullness of what God had for them and the promise. Land. So this is a big deal, standing on the shores of the Jordan. So with all of that in mind, God gives to them this promise, Joshua 1, beginning in verse 3. That every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I will give it to you. Indeed, from the, this, the wilderness and this Lebanon, and even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and as far as the great sea, toward the setting of the sun, all of that will be your territory. Just as I have been with Moses, I will also be with you, I will not leave you nor forsake you. So it says in verse six, be strong and courageous. Verse seven, he says it again, be strong and very courageous. Says it again in verse nine. You see it three times. It's kind of a big deal. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? But even with that promise and and the call there to courage, be strong and courageous. This question remains. Okay, the promise has come. The courage is kind of pumped up a little bit, standing on the shores of the Jordan River, how do we actually get across? The answer to that comes in chapter 3 of Joshua, beginning in verse 12. You can see it on this screen. It says this. Now then, here's how I want you to do it. Take for yourselves 12 men from the 12 tribes of Israel, one man from each tribe, and it shall come about when the soles of their feet, when the soles of their feet, the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, when their feet rest in the waters of the Jordan, then, when their feet rest in the waters, then the waters of the Jordan will be cut off and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand up in one heap. It might have, must have been quite a sight. But here's the deal, and this is kind of a key to this whole story. It's not until you step into the river, the soles of your feet are in the water, that the waters will be parted. And if you wait on the shores of the river for the waters to part so then you can go across, um, it will never happen. You'll never see it happen. The power will never be made manifest. And like the generation before you uh, that never did cross over, you will never cross over either. You'll never enter into this land, experience this life that I have prepared for you, so you're gonna have to trust me, is the word of the Lord to the people on the shores of the Jordan River, And it's going to take some risk because life in the kingdom of God sometimes involves stepping into the deep water of a risky obedience. But here's the promise that when you do that, when you step into the deep water, and deep water is going to be something different for all of you. And I want you to think metaphorically of what deep water God may be calling you into. It's when you step into the deep water that God begins To make a way, sometimes in ways that you didn't think there would be a way. And in verse sixteen of chapter three, Joshua, that's what the people did. At least the Levites, the priests, did in verse sixteen. So the waters, they, they stepped into the water, and the waters which had been flowing down stood up in one heap. And the priests stood firm on dry ground. And then after that, the people crossed as well. It's very interesting, and it's a key part of the story. The priests went first into the deep water, that part of the water, and then the people followed on dry ground, entering into this new season of their life together. But to really get into that story, and to really understand actually what's at stake uh, in the story, and, and what really are the risks for the people as they're being called to step into this deep water, I need to tell you some things about the Jordan River, some, some backstory. About the Jordan River and what, what, what it meant to these ancient people, both in symbol and in reality. Uh, let's start with this: um, that in ancient times, ancient people in the ancient world, um, water was a source of, of life. It was, a, it was it actually water was scarce. So rivers were highly valued. Indeed, they were sometimes seen as sacred. That's why they were sacred, because they were so, water was so scarce. They saw water as being a source of life. In Egypt, it was the Nile. There was almost a, a sacred uh, relationship with the Nile. It was a little bit weird. In India, it was the Ganges. But to Israel, this is important, the Jordan wasn't seen so much as a source of life as it was seen as a source of frustration. And that's kind of tied into the story I already told you about the backstory of this, because the Jordan River stood, as it kind of did, both figuratively and literally, as a barrier, uh, as a kind of obstacle between the people of God and the land to which God had called them and promised them, and this life that had been um, offered to them by following Him into this place. And and there it was. There was the river. It was right. There And they had to face the river now. And here's another key. The reason they were having to face this river and get across it some way was because precisely because the previous generation had not done that. They had never crossed over. As I'm putting the little pieces of this picture together, add in now this. That the previous generation of which I speak that wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, having been delivered from Pharaoh and all that stuff, um, they were the people of God. So they never crossed the Jordan. I'll put this together even better as we go on. I hope you'll understand it. Um, they were the people of God. They'd been called by God, redeemed, as it were, out of Egypt. They, they had gone through the Red Sea. No longer were they slaves. Now they belonged to God, a people for God's own possession, but for a variety of reasons, um, including their own sin at times. They had wandered in the desert, as I've said already, for 40 years, often grumbling and complaining that God's promises weren't true, that his power wasn't real. And uh, actually, they died that way. Many in that generation died that way, grumbling and complaining. Indeed, it says they died in graves of craving. It was never enough. And that's weird, because I'm painting a picture of people who were indeed God's People delivered from Pharaoh, grumbling and complaining. Sure, they followed God out of Egypt. They were, in some sense, redeemed, crossed the Red Sea. They had been saved, as it were, from Pharaoh and Egypt anyway, no longer slaves, but they never crossed over into the fullness. What God had prepared for them, they never entered into the land that God had for them. And all by itself, just that part of the story, Um, brings to the scene of the people on the shores of the Jordan River a tremendous amount of significance, maybe some significance that we didn't always dial into and some great dramatic tension because they're not just at the shores of some river. Um, It's a bigger deal than that. They are on the verge of entering into something with God that their fathers and their mothers, even fathers and mothers in the faith, as it were, uh, had spoken of, there's a promised land. There's a way to live. There's a way to be with God and maybe yearned for but had never, ever experienced, had never really entered into. So, so they're on the verge of dream come true kind of things. Maybe even stuff they quit believing was even real. Have you ever had that? You read some stuff in the Bible and you go, wait, doesn't that ever happen? Like, you kind of quit believing. <laughs> what God used to do, he can still do and they're kind of getting their hopes up Now, which is always dangerous to get your hopes up, but here it is. The possibility is kind of right in front of them. They're on the shore, and God's about to do a new thing, and everybody on the shore of the Jordan River can sense it, and some of you might be sensing that same thing in the church, this church right here with some of the things that are going on. I can just sense God's about to do a new thing, standing on the the shores of some Jordan River kind of thing, but now to all of that add this. That while the Jordan for Israel was a kind of barrier that they needed to overcome, uh, to the people of Canaan, who were they? They were the people who lived in the land of promise that they were trying to get to across the Jordan River, were in the land of Canaan, dial into this. That to those people living there, um, the Jordan River was a kind of protection for them. Let me explain that it was because it was, a, it was the Jordan River was a buffer zone between the people of God and the land of Canaan, because as long as the people of God just stayed over there on the other side of the Jordan, uh, wandering in the desert, grumbling amongst themselves um, about what God used to do, but he doesn 't anymore. I remember when we crossed the Red Sea, but he doesn 't do that now, that kind of thing. Um, the fortified, as long as the people stayed over there, never crossed over into the promised land the the fortified cities of Canaan and the d- d- dastardly, um, um, damaging uh, worship of Baal uh, were entirely safe. Um, could function unopposed, creating a picture in my mind, it's a frightening one, and all too often a real one in our day, it creates a picture in my mind of an impotent church, not this one, but think in your mind of a church in, in America, a just impotent church that's lost its sense of mission. Sure, we're all saved from Egypt. We're all going to heaven when we die, as it were, uh, but very little impact in the culture uh, for good or for God. But now to all of that, giving you a lot here to paint the picture, add this, the river itself. Now I'm getting down to the physical realities of the river, which is going to make it harder to cross than we might think, but because beyond the spiritual significance is this physical reality Of the Jordan, because here's the deal about the Jordan. Under normal circumstances, the Jordan River was actually not hard to cross at all. In fact, archaeologists indicate that there were at least 60 places along the the Jordan River that people could cross, and a large number of people could cross and and do it quite easily. But according to the text, and this is a key, easy thing to miss, um, but in Joshua chapter 3, verse 15, it says that Jordan at this particular time was at flood stage which makes the Jordan River act a little different than it normally does. Overflowing its banks in the day of harvest is what it said, which changes, again, the prospects of crossing uh, dramatically. But let me explain a little bit uh, more about that as to why it was going to change how they cross and uh, the chances that they're taking. Because even when the Jordan River was within its banks, not at flood stage, Um, even then, and even though it was shallow at spots, it had a very rapid current. Um, The Jordan River originated, actually, it began to flow in Mount Hermon at an elevation of about 7,000 feet. It descended from there to the Sea of Galilee. From the Sea of Galilee, it went to the Dead Sea. By the time it gets to the Dead Sea, it's 1,200 feet below sea level. So so 7,000 feet elevation, 1,200 feet uh, uh, below sea level. What that does is it creates a pretty significant current, but now in flood stage, just imagine what that looks like. It's much worse. Indeed, when the Jordan River flooded, it would actually fill up an adjacent gorge. It was called the Zor, Z-O-R, and and the, the the gorge was like 10 to 20 feet deep. So the river would begin to swell, and instead of just kind of spreading out into all sorts of fields, you see flooding zones that look like that, it would first of all fill this gorge that was 20 feet 10 to 20 feet deep at kind of the wall, and it served actually to kind of contain the river and hold it in when it did indeed flood. And what we need to know is uh, that it was in that very place at this gorge called the Zor, at the edge of this gorge that the people had gathered um, on the shores of the Jordan River, Waiting to cross, which means, among other things, this. That when God said, in chapter 3, verse 13, that you need to step into the river before the water parts, when the soles of your feet rest in the water, um, it, you just needed to dial in. It wasn't a gradual thing like walking to the beach. And, you know, you're ankle deep, and then you're knee deep, and then you're waist deep. It wasn't like that. Because when they went into the water, they went into the water, um, 10 to 20 feet deep of water at the edge of the gorge. So, uh, that very first step, uh, as they were holding the ark, this is the priests, 12 of them, they're holding the ark. Their very first step into the gorge is the big one. As soon as you take that step, you are in over your head, you're carrying the ark, you're going to the bottom 10 feet down, 20 feet down, and I'm telling you, when you're going down like that, you think you're gonna die. they didn't die because this thing happened and God made a way, but not only for the Levites, he made a way for the people to follow. Let's kind of back up on the story just a second. Let me ask you a question and use your imagination to enter into this. I just described what it had to feel like to be a priest who steps into the water and now you think you're gonna die because you're in over your head, but not everybody had to do that. That was only 12 people who had to do that. Um, So what do you think it felt like to be one of the 12? To be one of what I call the first steppers. One of the first steppers in this story. One of the 12 priests. To that question add this question. How different do you think the experience of the first steppers, those priests who took the ark and stepped into the deep water that was in over their head, how different was their experience compared to someone who came later in the middle of the pack, who crosses... When the water had already parted, when it was all at a heap, you know, piled up in a the, in the heap is what the text says. Well, here, here's the deal about that, I think. Um, if you're one of those who came later, and I'm not saying you are or you aren't, but you can imagine being both of, in either one of these categories. If you're one of the people who came later, you still had to cross over. You still had to... Um, exercise faith. It still was going to be scary because there's a wall of water and you got to believe that God's going <laughs> to keep it there. You know, keep it there. Uh, so there's going to have to be some faith exercise for you to go over, even though now the water is off to the side and the ground has become dry. But those first steppers, I want to talk about first steppers because there's some in this room and there's some that you know uh, as well. They had a much different experience, I believe. They paid a much higher price. Um, they had to face much more fear because they're the first ones to take the plunge, as it were. But here's the other thing I want you to grab with the, the picture of this whole thing, metaphorically, symbolically, actually, that what they accomplished by their willingness to step into deep water and for a moment feel like, I think we're going to die, um, not only created dry ground for them because they didn't die, it created dry ground for everybody else. It created dry ground for generations to come, for everyone else who came after. So let's get the whole picture, try to pull it all together. I've been fire hosing you here for a few minutes. and Now I'm going to do it some more. Anyway, um, what we have here on the shores of the Jordan River is a fascinating Picture of a number of things, but let me give you two. The first has to do with some generational stuff, and in particular, what I want to call generational sin. When the consequences of a previous generation or generations, uh, their inability or their unwillingness to deal with, not Jordan really, but Jordan symbolically, so the previous generation in a family or in a church, in a culture, their, their inability or, uh, or unwillingness to deal with their dysfunction, to deal with their sin, with their patterns of addiction and control um, is undealt with, is never crossed over. Um, the, the problem, the addiction, the pattern of control and, and, and whatever it might be is often left to the next generation like an inheritance that you really didn't want. Um, Because what we inherited was this sick family system that I grew up in, and now it's the same in my family, and now it's the same in that family, and never did it get broken. And the reason I'm stuck with it as a kid is because my parents didn't and their parents didn't, and that kind of thing. That can be in a church, a culture. It's a systemic kind of thing, and that's all in this story. Because the very fact, again, I've said this, that the people of God in Joshua 3 are having to face the Jordan River at all um, and now have to cross it was entirely because the previous generation didn't. Uh, couldn't. Wouldn't. And, and, and now dial into this. At some level, if I'm sitting on the Jordan River with this scary thing I have to do because the previous generation didn't deal with it, um, that's not fair. It's not fair. Why didn't they do it like that? But how many of you know it's true? And can we say it's not fair, but here's the deal. It's still true. It's just true. That some of the struggles that you face in your life right now, um, that some of the struggles as a church you face right now, I don't even know what they are. It doesn't matter. I have them in my church, too. Um some of the obstacles that you face in your personal life, in your church life, are at least in part due to a past generation's undealt with stuff, just stuff. Um, Psychologists call it family system stuff. Many of you are familiar with that, and maybe more familiar with family system stuff than you are with this story of crossing the Jordan and how it actually is a parable, parable almost of family system stuff where... Patterns of abuse and patterns of neglect and dysfunction, of divorce and addiction and abandonment go on and on and on for as long as we can remember. That's been in our family. For as long as we can remember. That's been in our church for generations, and it's not your fault. (laughs) Um, And it isn't fair. But you got it. (laughs) it's in. It's right here in my marriage now. It's right here in our church now. I got it. What was kind of handed down to me, uh, one of the words we use to describe that is baggage. You got baggage. You ever hear that about each, you know, a guy's really got a lot of baggage, so stay away, you know, whatever that means. Um, well, you can call it baggage. Um, I would call it Jordan. You got a Jordan. Um, here's another thing about the Jordan you got. Everybody's got one, probably more than one here's the other hard thing, but it 's true: until you get across it, whatever it is, um, go toward it, step into it, into the scary, deep water that nobody wants to go into because that's kind of scary. until you do that, you'll never get freedom in that particular arena of life. you may have really good things in your life in many, many ways, but if, if there's this thing you just know you're kind of stuck in, promise you, until you go toward it, step into it, you'll never get freedom. From it, so what we normally do is what the people of God did, and we're all people of God. That's part of where we can identify with the people in the story. What we normally do is stand on the shore, staring at the water, feeling sometimes like a victim because it's not my fault. Wishing it would go away. I've been in prayer meetings again. I grew up in church. My dad's a pastor. Where where our prayers all often sounded like you know, victims who were looking at a problem and and kind of praying like, God, God, just make it go away. And it wasn't. And you go, God isn't real. Oh, man, oh, man. Time to grow up. Um, With all of that, add this, how many of you also know that some of the benefits you know. So flip from the struggles that you might have because of someone else's inability to deal with something in your family, in your church, whatever. How many of you also know But some of the benefits you enjoy um, in your family, in just the way you look at life in your church, um, some of the dry ground you may be walking on as a church right now, um, some of those things are at least in part to the risky obedience of some men and women who went before you and who did step into the deep water of risky obedience, of something that, and they stepped into the deep water of something that no one thought would ever change. Somewhere maybe in your past. Someone stepped into the deep water that, that no one thought would ever change in your family. That will never change in our church. That will never change in this community where we live. That will never change in the culture. But somebody stepped into some deep water um, and it created dry ground. Um, I mean, it's, it's just this thing you can see if you get your head around this. Um, I was thinking about this a while ago in, in, our, in our American culture, Martin Luther King years ago, stepped into some deep water. He was a first-stepper, He was and he paid a really high price, and he thought he was going to die. He actually did die, but he created some dry ground, and it's still kind of wet there. There's still racist issues going on, obviously, but that's an incredible picture right there of what a first-stepper looks like. They pay a higher price than other people, but it creates dry ground not just for them, but for generations to follow... But being a first step is scary because that first step is a doozy. When you, and you don't, by the way, have to be Martin Luther King. When, oh, try this one out. When you break the silence in your family about this pattern that's been forever, when you say enough uh, about this behavior that's consistently here, because like the Levites carrying the ark in Joshua Chapter 3, when you step into the deep water, you're in over your head. You think you're going to die, but you don't die because when you step into the deep water of a risky obedience, God will make a way, but not just for you. This is the good news. Um, But for all sorts of other people like you, it creates dry ground for others, for generations to follow. And whenever I think about this thing, I think the first stepper uh, metaphor is clear. Whenever I think of that, I think about my dad, um, who in ways I'm aware of and in ways I'm not aware of, created dry ground for me to walk on, and I'm absolutely sure it's why I'm here, at least one of the reasons why I'm here, because in a variety of ways, my dad stepped into deep water, things that had been part of his family system or church system for years, one of the things I know about my dad was he didn't have a dad. He didn't have a dad. So he's stepping into deep water of, I don't know how to be a dad, and Um, it's not like he figured something out with his head, but he stepped into some real deep water about his own pain around that stuff and thought he was going to die when he allowed himself to feel how alone he was. But when he stepped into that and began to get some healing from God in ways he didn't even know it created dry ground for him, but also created dry ground for me and for my brothers and for my sisters. And when my dad stood up against a legalistic church system that he had grown up in, and so like being in an alcoholic system, at least you're used to it. You know how it works. And all of a sudden, he started discovering the amazing grace of God and began to say, no, it's it's, it's not about how we look, it's who we actually are, and we can walk in freedom in the grace of God when he started confronting the power system involved in that. He thought he was going to die, at least lose his job, but he didn't. Die, he created dry ground for himself, but also for my brothers and sisters, and for a church, and not only for that church that my dad passed through, to create a dry ground for my church, and maybe for this church in ways I didn't even think of until just now, because it ripples out in positive ways for generations. So 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 it, it can, you can be stuck for generations, but when somebody steps into the deep water and says, enough of this, we're gonna, we're gonna follow God here. Um, it ripples out for generations in positive ways. As well, and the second thing I, 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 I want you to get about this or feel about this is not, not only just grateful, I would, I would have you stir up some gratitude for the first steppers you know, but also... Um, is to stir up this sense of awareness that while we're gratitude, grateful for those who've been first steppers in our lives and maybe in this church you can have some people in your mind who've done that. Um, but here's the awareness is that we have opportunities to do the same. We always will. Um, to do more. And not just as individuals, though you might have some work to do in this uh, to step in some deep water around your family system, whatever. But also as a church, um, because we are always going to have a Jordan. Um, there's just going to be more than one, maybe more than a few. And all of that is actually rooted in a promise that uh, that at first sounds kind of troubling. But it's kind of getting back to this generational sin thing. But I mean, It's actually a promise that's full of hope and I think inspiring. And I, I think it will help you understand what I'm talking about with this generational Thing. Deuteronomy 5 begins in verse 8. Let me just read it and then unpack it for you. It says this um, that you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven or on the earth or under the earth, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And this is a weird place It's kind of weird. Uh, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations, to the third, there's generational sin, to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, all of that, especially the um, visiting the iniquity of the fathers for generations, uh, that part uh, sounds kind of bizarre and actually quite unfair. Kind of sounds like you're saying to your kids, okay, your grandma, your, your grandpa, who you never actually even knew was a jerk, so you're grounded for the rest of your life. That's weird. Um, <laughs> And, and, and it kind of sounds like that until you read it through. You, you read the rest of the verse where it talks about, about showing kindness to thousands. And what is actually happening here with this text there is, is a Hebrew literary device that utilizes what's known as a poetic parallelism. Poetic, I can't say it. Poetic blah, 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 parallelism. And sometimes it's a purpose, the purpose of the parallelism is for emphasis. Let me explain that. Um, John, uh, uh, Psalm 19, verse 1 says this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies pro- proclaim the work of his hand, which is the same thing uh, said a different way for emphasis. Another example, Proverbs, says there are three things that are never satisfied, four that say never enough. There are six things that God hates, seven which are an abomination to him. Now, the idea there is is not that um, the writer is suddenly thinking of one more thing it's not just it's seven it's not like that um, because the purchase of the the purpose of the parallelism is to give poetic emphasis to a single point, but sometimes the purpose of the parallelism I have to slow down in order to say that word um, is for contrast and that's what dials into this text, not for emphasis of a single point, but the contrast to different. Things example Genesis four twenty four Lamach says if Cain was avenged seven times I will be avenged seventy seven times which means if you think it was dangerous to go after Cain that's nothing compared to you coming after me he avenged seven I'm seventy seven times avenging First Samuel eighteen one right, one <laughs> a pretty uh, familiar text it says Saul king Saul has killed his thousands. Remember that. But David has killed his tens of thousands. Fact is, nobody's actually counting there. Um, the point is, Saul was a great warrior. But that's nothing compared to King David. Take that now back to Deuteronomy five, because when it says, "I will punish the sin and visit the iniquity of the fathers," and the third and fourth generation, the writer isn't counting, as if to say. Three, four, okay, five, you're free. It's not like, like that. What it's saying is this. Uh, that first of all, a generational sin, this thing we're talking, it's real. And, 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 it can, uh, and if it isn't dealt with, it can hang around for a very long time and it can do a lot of damage for a very long time, and you know it's true. Um, but that's nothing. Read the rest of the verse. But that's nothing compared to what happens when people in any generation stand up and, in one way or another, say, Enough. This cycle of sin in our family, our church, our community, whatever, is stopping here. And there you are stepping into deep water. And some of you have done it in your family, in your church. Stepping into deep water of your family's dysfunction or your church's impotence or your personal addiction, maybe or the walls you keep hitting in your marriage that you've just kind of learned to ignore, but now you finally say, enough, we're going to to talk about the lack of intimacy, and we're going to kind of move into this thing, I promise you. Um, The second you say, enough, we're going to deal with this now, you will wish that you didn't. The second you do it, you'll wish you didn't. And I'll tell you why. Because when you start dealing with that thing that's never been dealt with, and you start saying that thing out loud that is true, but it's never been said out loud, you are in way over your head. And you think you're going to die. But well, you won't. Um, because when you step into deep water of a risky obedience, God will make a way. As waters begin to part, providing dry ground. For you to walk on, but not just for you, for generations to follow in ways you can't even imagine. So the priest did what God told him to do. And the water's part of the people crossed, but it didn't stop there. It never does, by the way, because this is actually a story that actually needs to become a way we live. Indeed, it's this constantly recurring theme for the rest of their journey through the book of Joshua. It's centered around this singular question, um, the singular pattern. And the pattern or the question is this. Will the people of God trust God enough again today? Like they did when they crossed the Jordan. Now we're in the land. Okay, will they trust God enough again today to do what he says and follow where he leads? And here's the story all through the book of Joshua. Every time they do. What God tells them to do, and God sometimes calls them to do some really goofy things, like going around Jericho, blow the horn. How stupid is that? They did it! Um, every time they do, another piece of the land is theirs. Another level of freedom is entered into. Another dimension of their life with God in the kingdom of God is expanded and experienced. So let me wrap it up with this. Everybody has a Jordan River of some kind. To face. Possibly born of someone else's sin, generational sin, and it's possibly been there forever. But the promise of God is this. This is not just some random story. This story is here for our understanding of how life works in the kingdom of God. The promise is this, Joshua 1, verse 3, that you can cross that river and enter into a whole new way of living. Indeed, every place you put your feet out will give it to you. But you have to take the first step. And that first step is is a doozy. It's almost always a scary step. A fear-filled step. Because you think you're going to drown if I do that. Which is why God said in Joshua 1, over and over and over again, said it three times, be strong and courageous. (laughs) Only be strong and very courageous. Have I not commanded you be strong and very courageous? But the sad reality uh, is this, that many people and many churches and many faith communities spend their entire redeemed lives. And I said it that way on purpose. We spend our entire redeemed lives. We are God's people. We're going to heaven when we die. Um, Often spend our entire lives standing scared on the shores of some Jordan River thing in our life, saying things like this. And I'm not picking anybody because I'm came up with this out of my own whiningness. Saying things like this, Lord, when you part the waters, I will walk across. Lord, when when you provide financial security, I will start to give. Or Lord, when when, when you give me lots of time, I will learn to pray. Promise, I will. Or when you, when you change the behavior of those people over there, I will learn to love. Or, or when you change the heart of my spouse or my parents or my friend and they apologize, then I will forgive. <laughs> and it doesn't work like that. It never has. <laughs> it never will. So be strong and Courageous. And I don't even know what I'm speaking into. I, I don't. This is what I love about this word. I don't know what I'm speaking into. I know I'm speaking into some stuff. Individually for some of you, corporately for, in ways I don't even know. It gives me some dry ground <laughs> to, to say this. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. But I'm gonna have to step into some deep water but I promise you that when you do and you have been doing this God will make a way and the best part you guys is it's not just for you it will ripple out for generations to follow let's pray as we close Lord I thank you for my heart is just uh, I'm thrilled Lord at these stories that sometimes when we read them sound stuffy and weird. And yeah, 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 that's what happened. They crossed this thing and they put their But when we unpack it like this, we find that these these things are there for, this is our life. We're in this story. We are in this story. And I pray as, as the power of your spirit is released in this story, in this room, that, that men and women, uh, kids, whoever, would be able to, as even as you are, identifying a Jordan, that the courage would rise and faith would rise to step into these things that bring freedom for generations. I pray it in your name. Amen.